we're going to start with some questions that you've probably wondered at some point in your life. Why do some people seem inclined to make bad decisions more than other people? Uh, specifically, why are people who've had too much to drink inclined to make bad decisions? Uh, why are people who are addicted to any substance inclined to make bad decisions? Uh, what's the correlation between alcohol consumption or substance abuse of any kind and poor decision making? Because as far as I know, there's really no positive correlation between alcohol or other addictive substances and good decision making. I've never heard a story that sort of concluded with, it's a good thing I was drunk because otherwise I might have made a really bad decision. Today we're in part four of the series, Better, Fewer, More, where one of the big ideas for the series is the connection between good decisions or good questions and good decisions. That good questions sort of set us up for good decisions. So we're exploring five questions that can help all of us do just that. And if you will get in the habit of sort of asking, answering honestly, and acting on your answer to these five questions, you will make better decisions with fewer regrets and be more Christ-like. In part one, I suggest you memorize a verse from Proverbs 27, 12. It says, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. And when the prudent or the wise see danger, they respond appropriately. And as concise and as straightforward as this verse is, my hope is that the questions that we're going to talk about in this series will help you to see danger more clearly and how to respond better and more like Christ. However, these five questions will sort of bring you in conflict with yourself when you're wanting to act now, decide fast, focus on the immediate over the important. And this first and these five questions can sort of be reminders and maybe an opportunity from God to pause. You're thinking long enough to see the danger. So question number one. Am I being honest with myself? Or am I being honest with myself, really? Or are you trying to sell yourself? Or is someone else trying to sell you on something you will regret later? Are you just deceiving yourself? And then last week, question number two, what story do I want to tell? When the decision that you're in the process of making right now, whether it's relational, financial, academic, or professional, when the decision you're making right now is reduced to a story that you tell, what story do you want to tell? What story do you want to be told about you? And the good news is that you get to decide, even when other people impact your options or your opportunities, that you write the story of your life one decision at a time. I want to thank North Point Community Church for many of the ideas behind this series. So back to our introductory question. Why do some people seem inclined to make bad decisions? Specifically, why are people who've had too much to drink inclined to make bad decisions? Uh, physiologically speaking, for those who drink too much, there are really two reasons they are inclined to make bad decisions. But this will also lead to why all of us are inclined to make bad decisions at some point in our lives. Uh, first, alcohol increases neonephrine neonepher in the brain, which sort of acts as a stimulant, and stimulants increase impulsiveness and decrease inhibition. So there's less sensitivity to the potential consequences of a decision. And second, and perhaps worse, Alcohol temporarily impairs the activity of the prefrontal cortex. You know, this is the part of the brain that enables you to connect the dots, to think relation, or to think, think rationally, uh, and consequently to make better decisions. It's the part of your brain that may not have started working properly until you're in your 20s. And alcohol, as just one of many examples, leads a person to act without thinking clearly or without feeling appropriately. That people who drink too much in some ways have sort of switched off their conscience. And this is where this relates to all of us. That people who are more inclined to make bad decisions 
have usually silenced their conscience in some way. And our conscience is where we sort of feel the social, relational, spiritual, cultural, or moral tension internally about the decisions we're making, or maybe that we don't feel quite right about, or when we're sort of considering options with at least one option that is wrong. Now, intoxicated people silence that tension in their brains through alcohol. But if we're all honest, all of us have probably tried to silence that tension in other ways as well. And while intoxicated people physically can't pay attention to external or even internal cues, those of us sober folks are often guilty of choosing to ignore external or internal cues. That intoxicated people basically sort of silence their conscience, but many times sober people choose to ignore their conscience. Which brings us to our third question. Question number three. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? That while I'm making a decision, uh, when I'm considering the options, do any of the options sort of create a tension that deserves my attention? And that sometimes is an option that we're sort of considering that sort of creates tension inside of us. Something that just doesn't seem right about it. It sort of gives us pause. It causes us to hesitate. And at least initially, we may not even know why. And this can also be referred to as a red flag moment. You might have another name for it, but you know what I'm talking about. It's that internal sense that something about this just doesn't seem right. And when that happens, you owe it to yourself to pause and pay attention to that tension. Don't ignore it. Don't brush it to the side. Don't rush past it. Don't talk yourself out of it. Let it bother you. And the problem, of course, is that this is not easy to do. That focalism sort of blurs and exaggerates things. Confirmation bias sort of distorts things. Our schedules and our busyness sort of compress things. Uh, Sometimes we're in a hurry. Sometimes someone else is in a hurry. And then in many instances, we're under the impression that what's bothering us isn't really bothering anyone around us. That everyone else seems to be fine with whatever it is we're considering. That no one else in the office seems to be wrestling with their conscience. I mean, technically, it's not illegal, it's not immoral, but there's just something in you that feels like there's something not right about that decision. And when something dings your conscience, pay attention to that. That this isn't emotionalism. In fact, it's actually a facet of your intellect trying to sort of slice through the fog of the exaggerated and distracting bits of information that are cluttering your ability to think rationally. So pay attention to that tension. That people who study and sort of understand the brain and understand how it works, they say that even when we have those red flag moments, it's actually a specific part of our brains alerting us to sort of pay attention. And if we pause, we stand a far better chance of making a better decision. Uh, There's a sort of a tabloid-esque narrative from the life of King David that illustrates the importance of paying attention to the tension. Uh, King David, Israel's second king, sort of steps onto the pages of history as a shepherd boy. And during that season as a kid, a prophet shows up at David's family's house and announces to his family that God has chosen David to be the next king of Israel. Now, when a prophet shows up to your home to say one of your kids is going to be the next king, that's a good day, right? But the problem was Israel already had a king, King Saul, but Saul wasn't doing a very good job of being a king. And so God decided to replace him, just not quite yet. And so time goes by and young King David, or young David at the time, has his legendary encounter with the Philistine giant Goliath. And in that moment, after killing Goliath, David immediately becomes a household name throughout the kingdom of Israel, as well as throughout the territory controlled by the Philistines. And it didn't take long before David's popularity exceeded that of King Saul, who again was not a very good king. And Saul becomes jealous of David. 
And Saul tries to kill David. And so David is forced to flee and he becomes a fugitive. However, by now, David is a legend. And as far as the people of Israel are concerned, he's a war hero. And by the time David left Saul's service, he had a reputation not only as a warrior, but as a leader. And so hundreds of men flocked to David's side. And before long, David had his own little small army. But it was an army without a home because they were fugitives from the king. And eventually Saul gets some sort of really good intel on David's location. And so Saul gathers together about 3,000 soldiers, which was a huge army in ancient times. And King Saul leads his soldiers into the desert to sort of remove David as a threat to his throne once and for all because Saul had also heard that David had been anointed king. And as Saul and the soldiers are winding their way through the hills of the desert, Saul halts the entire army of men so he can relieve himself privately. Now Saul sort of sees a cave and heads off unaccompanied to take his potty break. And now if you don't know the story, this is where the story takes sort of a strange and possibly providential twist that David and a handful of his guys are actually hiding in the very cave that Saul chooses. I mean, what are the odds of that? Like, talk about the stars sort of lining up and God smiling on you. And from David's perspective, this was a best case scenario. Because before this, David had heard that Saul and his army were headed his way. And so David told his men to sort of scatter in the hills and hide until Saul and his soldiers passed through. And then once they were gone, David and his men would sort of regather and escape in the opposite direction. And all this was working perfectly until Saul realizes he needs to stop for his potty break and makes his way up to the very cave that David chose as his temporary hideout. And when David and his men see Saul coming their way, they sort of move back further into the cave. And so David is back in the recesses of the cave and Saul appears as sort of a silhouette coming into the cave. And Saul has just sort of come in from the bright Middle Eastern sun and his eyes probably haven't adjusted so he can't see a thing in the cave. And so Saul walks in just far enough to ensure his privacy and he takes off his robe and sort of squats down facing the opening of the cave with his back to David and David's men. And today we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 24. You can follow along the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, head to bible.com app. Once you're in the app, head to the more menu option in the bottom right corner, select events, and you can find our church. We'll also have the notes and verses on the screen as well. And if you're David, again, you might easily think this was sort of a sign from God, that God had delivered Saul, uh, David's enemy Saul into his hands. Like, what else could this possibly mean? I mean, he'd already been anointed king, and everyone knew David was next. The only thing standing in David's way was the current king. And there the current king is, unguarded, unsuspecting, and very vulnerable. And if David wasn't thinking that, we know that the men around him were thinking that. Because in the written account, including David's life, Here's what the account said. 1 Samuel 24, verse, verse 4, sorry. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. And there he is. Let, let's kill Saul and go home. This was the perfect scenario. No civil war and minimal bloodshed. So they're thinking like, let's kill the king before the king kills you. Like, what other options are there, David? And so you can imagine the emotion in the cave that afternoon. The adrenaline, the, the pressure that David felt to act. And he does act, but probably not as anyone would expect. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But here's what makes this story even more interesting, that David felt the emotion, the adrenaline, the pressure to act, but David felt something else as well, a tension. That there was a hesitation that something about this wasn't exactly right. Verse 5, but then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. 
And this was bothering David enough that the writer notices, or maybe David outright says it. Either way, David pays attention to the tension in his conscience, and he doesn't just ignore it or move past it. That David paid attention to this tension in his conscience enough that he does something. He says something about it. Verse 6, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. Like who put Saul on the throne of Israel to begin with? Who made Saul the king? Well, God did. And, and who am I to replace what God has put in place? Like this can't be God's plan. I can't kill the king, even if the king is trying to kill me. And in spite of the pressure to act, and in spite of the expectations of his friends nearby, David makes a very difficult decision. And in this moment, there's sort of a hint of something that, that many of us wrongly assume in these decision-making situations. We think we can control outcomes. Now, David might have thought about what would happen if he killed Saul, that, that David would become king, right? And the men around David also probably thought about what would happen if David killed Saul. David would become king. But there was no guarantee of that if David made the decision to kill Saul. And at this point, we all have something in common. We think, or sorry, rather, when we think we can control or predict outcomes, we make decisions that oftentimes we regret because we can't control outcomes. We can't predict the future. Uh, let me prove it to you. Have you ever been disappointed? Of course you have. I have too, right? What is disappointment? Disappointment is what we experience when we don't predict the future accurately or we can't control the outcome like we thought we could. And the point is that ignoring the tension that you feel sets you up for disappointment. However, paying attention to the tension, sort of allowing it to bother you, is how you avoid unnecessary regret and disappointment. Uh, think about the situation through last week's question. The question was, what story do I want to tell? Like, what story would David want to tell about how he became king? Uh, imagine David's grandchildren gathering around asking him, Grandpa, tell us about the story about how you became king, how, how you snuck up behind King Saul and how you killed him while he was going to the bathroom. Like, Grandpa, you're just so brave. Like, that's not the story David would want to be told, and, and that's not the story that David would want told about him. And somehow, some way, David paid attention to his conscience. And he did something very few people have the self-control or the awareness from God to do. He didn't take the opportunity to hurt his enemy. Verse 7, So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. Well, Saul eventually finishes his business and leaves the cave, initially having no idea how close he came to losing his life. And Saul sort of rejoins his army, his men, and is preparing to continue his search for David when suddenly, after Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, verse 8, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord, the King. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. And there is uh, the very man that Saul and his army have been hunting. Like David was in the mouth of the cave that Saul had just exited. Like, can you imagine the drama of this moment? And then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? Because there were people telling Saul that David was going to be king but also that David was going to kill Saul so he could become king sooner. Verse 10, This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. So the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed. One, look, my father, at what I have, done, I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. And this proves I am not trying to harm you. And that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. This Saul sort of yanks his robe to look at it, and, and sure enough, the corner of his robe is missing. 
And in that moment, everyone recognized that David was the better man. And yet again, David was the hero in his own story, that he spared Saul's life when everyone knew that Saul would not have done the same thing for David. That David concludes with this sort of powerful statement that we should all take to heart as well. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you were trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. That basically I'll wait and I'll allow God to determine the outcome of this conflict. I will not take matters into my own hands and I will not replace what God has put in place. I will not play God in your life, Saul, and I will not play God in mine either. I will not, let, I will not use your bad behavior as an excuse to do bad things. And this incredible heroic response from David comes from paying attention to the inconvenient tension that David was feeling in his conscience. And now all eyes are on Saul, who has been humiliated by David. And Andy Stanley describes this best. He says, Saul wasn't humiliated by David's military skill. Saul was humiliated by David's humility. And so if you're Saul, like, what do you do now, right? Do you continue to pursue a man who, who could have taken your life but chose not to? And even Saul knows better than that. And so he turns his army around and Saul heads back to the city. Now let me ask you a question. Do you want to be the hero in your story? Do you, do you know that you get to choose whether or not you're the hero in your story? Do you want to write a story you'll be proud to tell and you'll be proud for your children and your grandchildren to tell and to, to know about you? Then you need to make the decision that I will pay attention to the tension in my conscience. And part of my job as a pastor is to sort of highlight the ways that God is working in your life. And your conscience, that, that tension that you feel, is one way God is working in your life. That God gives us our conscience to feel the tension in our decisions, and, and we have to pay attention to the tension. This is why we don't sort of only take our decisions into our own hands. This is why we have to pray and ask God what to do, because we can't predict the future, and we can't control the outcomes. And we pay attention to the tension by asking ourselves, is there a tension that deserves my attention? And when I was a senior in high school, um, some friends and I found some old athletic jerseys in a closet under the gym bleachers. Uh, you know those grungy, basement-like closets that you imagine rats running around it, or maybe you don't have to imagine that. Uh, anyhow, we found some old soccer jerseys, volleyball jerseys, baseball hats, and we thought these were awesome because they were from a generation or two before us, from the 1960s or 1970s, and so, so we took a few. Now, one person in that group was, was sort of hesitant and sort of questioned it a little bit. But eventually, they ignored that tension and sort of went along with it because one of the jerseys was his favorite number. Oh, well, anyhow, some time goes by, and we weren't thinking too much about it, but one of us was called into the principal's office, and of course, it was the friend who felt hesitant at first. And we tried to reassure him that it wasn't a big deal, like after all those jerseys were sort of sitting there unused for at least 30 years. Well, this guy goes into the principal's office and confesses that he took a jersey. And when we talked to him after, afterwards, he said it just didn't feel right. He couldn't really say much more than that. And well, this became big news in our small little high school, and eventually the rest of us were called in and given the opportunity to confess taking the jerseys. And the school newspaper actually called it Jersey Gate. And for those of us who ended up confessing, well, we got some consequences along the way. What does that have to do with you? Well, the decision that you're wrestling with right now falls somewhere between choosing whether or not to take an old jersey from your high school and murdering a king, like somewhere in between there. However, the principle is the same. If there's something in you, something you can't quite put your finger on, or perhaps something someone else has put their finger on, uh, maybe an option that you're considering and, and, and now it sort of bothers you, just pause. 
pay attention. Give it some time. Let that bother you a little bit until you know why it bothers you. Don't ignore it. Don't rush past it. Ask God why it bothers you. It may be God's way of protecting you and protecting those around you, and this may be His way of keeping you from a decision that you will live to regret. Or maybe that inconvenient tension is the pathway to an option that you've never considered before. Is there a tension that deserves your attention? And if so, pay attention to that tension in your conscience. And like David, if you do that, you'll be glad that you did. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us enough to step into our situations at times and sort of stirring our spirits and, and giving us that internal nudge that something's not right. Thank you for using our conscience to sort of create tension in us that we can feel. That sort of pauses us or hopefully causes us to pause long enough to think about it. God, for those of us who are in the process of making decisions right now that we feel a tension about some option that we're considering, would you help us to pause long enough and not rush through it, not brush it aside, not just try to convince ourselves it's not a big deal? Would you help us to pause long enough and look to you to know what is it about that that makes us pause, that creates tension in us? And God, would you help show us the option that we need to take? Would you help us to have the, the wisdom to know what the option is? And would you also give us the courage to actually do it? And God, for the rest of us who maybe we're not in a decision right now where we feel that tension, would you help us in your grace and in your mercy, would you help us to remember this story and this principle when we do face a tension in our lives, when we do have a decision that we aren't sure what to do with? God, we need your help. We can't do this on our own. In fact, the tension itself is not even our own doing. It's you. We, we believe that it's you helping us. So God, would you continue to help us as we make decisions? And would you help us to pause long enough to pay attention to that tension? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.